Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're talking Excalibur number 98, Fireflies, in which Nightcrawler finally succeeds in taking charge of sending Black Air to the devil, but Megan and Kitty do the dirty work, ably assisted by Kurt's new stage outfit. Excalibur number 98 was originally published in June 1996, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Carlos Pacheco on pencils, Bob Wyasek on inks, Adrian Lenshock on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters and Suzanne Gaffney on editing. What about that one? I don't know. What do you think? Well, one thing's for sure nobody's going to be looking at your face. Welcome back to the Carlos Pachecasance, and what a Pachecasance it is, with more big moments and fire explosions than you can shake a perfectly articulated fist at. But who are we, starting with myself? I am Dr. Anna Papard. I am a very professional scholar of representations of gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture, and the very unofficial PR manager of Mr. Kurt Wagner. Yet somehow, despite being ostensibly perfectly placed to discuss Kurt's new clothes, I find myself at a loss for words. I am hoping my co-hosts can help me. I'm sure they can. Let's introduce them now, starting with Mav. How's your style this week? Uh, I, I I don't know if people follow me on, on Instagram or Twitter or anything. I, I've been doing home repairs. Just, you know, it's, it's summer and um, <laughs> you know, among other things I'm teaching. But I, I discovered something and I've owned my house for 18 years. Um, I was um, replacing the garage door opener. So when doing that, I discovered in the rafters of my garage, there's a power outlet where the garage door opener is plugged in. And on the other side of the power outlet, there's just two wires just jammed right in there. No plug outlet, just just like oh, no. um, jammed right in there controlling a floodlight that is outside of my garage because someone didn't wire it. They just did that thing they warn you not to do when you're two. And since before I bought my house two decades ago, that's apparently just been in the rafters of my garage. And miraculously, I have not burned my home down. And I'm happy about that. That's fixed now. That's what I did today. <laughs> I was like, I, like there, there's a picture where I was like, I do not want this. This seems like a bad idea. <laughs> and um, I don't even have anyone to blame because the person I bought the house from was very old when I bought it. So I don't even know if he's alive anymore. And that was 20, 20 years ago. And it's just like, oh, God, that is disturbing. So that's how I'm doing. <laughs> it has nothing wow. to do with comics or anything. It's just the so story nice. that's on my mind because I was doing it earlier. And I just like looked up and I'm like, this looks terrifying, if you know anything about, <laughs> about oh, electricity. Dear. Well, that's I'm glad I'm you're but, still you know, alive. The, and yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah, sorry yeah, that yeah, you have developed electricity powers. <laughs> again, aside from taking the picture of it, like I immediately pulled those cables out and then, you know, took yeah. the outlet apart. I fixed it. But like just looking at it, I'm just going, why? Why would anybody think this is a good idea who was literally over the age of two? Um, <laughs> it, it was terrifying and, and scary. With that on my mind, everything in this comic is going to be awesome, right? Because <laughs> because that nothing is. could be as bad as looking at your house and going, oh, my God, I should be dead, which is where I was. So, <laughs> so many other things to look at in this comic. <laughs> yeah. 
and we will talk about them. Andrew, in what fashion do we find you this week? I was ganged up on yesterday by three of my former students to point out that my fashion and lifestyle conforms to a subculture identified as mushroom lesbian. And I'm not <laughs> even fighting it. It's, it I mean, seems like a lovely like, place to go. I'm going that sounds it. like a compliment. I think lean into that. I think so. Uh, was it a compliment? Or or you don't know? or not. Okay. No, I, I'm going to go ahead and doubt that. Uh, <laughs> nope. Compliment. Compliment. <laughs> okay. I am Jay Andrew Devan. I'm a lecturer at Saving Terms University, co-project lead of Sequential Scholars. And I really want to tell my Claremont Excalibur story real quick because it's pod relevant and deeply validating. Please so do. So for the, for the last year or so, or however we've been at this, we've been talking about... Um, our, our opinion of what Excalibur is. So I was interviewing Claremont last week as part of a project, two hour interview and an hour and a half in like, like this guy challenges everything I say. He challenges the premise <laughs> of every single question. He, he's not curmudgeonly. He's quite polite. He's just very um, combative, I guess. Uh, anyway. So I, I get to this question about Excalibur that I wanted to talk about because we've been doing this podcast and I, I preface it because I think he's going to get mad at me. And I just say, I know you're really going to hate this. But I've described Excalibur before as group therapy meets sex farce. And he immediately goes, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Validation. So our podcast was right. <laughs> <laughs> everything else everything else about your career in the last <laughs> several Five years, years when you've been chronically is apparently no. wrong. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Excalibur is group therapy meets sex farce. <laughs> Awesome. Oh my god, I love that. That's amazing. I'm so glad you got to put it to him specifically in those terms. <laughs> looking forward to hearing the development of that project. And we are also very much looking forward to talking with this week's returning guest for what will no doubt be an epic discussion of this epic issue. Um, I'm so excited to get a contact high from his excitement about this comic. The pod is delighted to welcome back Quentin Harrison. Hello, Quentin. Hey, glad to be back. We're so thrilled to have you again, and I'll refresh our listeners about what you get up to with a little bio, and we'll get right into it. Quentin Harrison has dedicated his career to bringing critical discourse to the world of popular music. This includes his Record Redux series, a 10-book set dedicated to resetting the critical narratives of influential but often misrepresented women in pop music, including the Spice Girls, Carly Simon, Donna Summer, Madonna, and Kylie Minogue. In addition to his books, he's been an active contributor to Albumism.com, crafting a range of content for the site that includes retrospective tributes, new album reviews, playlists, and more. Just as importantly, he is an avid comic book collector and reader with a passion for the comics of both Marvel and DC, and as we know, a particular passion for Excalibur. So Quentin, we've obviously talked a lot about how this back half of Excalibur, the war in Ellis era, differs a lot from the front half of Excalibur under Claremont and Davis, but we're coming to terms with those differences, and I think we're getting excited about some of what's going on in the series. I know that you really love this era of Excalibur, so I'd love to hear you talk about it that a little bit like it's very different from the other era obviously and you joined us for alan davis's first issue as writer and artist for excalibur number 42 and i know how much you love that book but what yes. do you love about this new era of excalibur what appeals to you about it and i'm sure like maybe you guys can all relate to this or at least it's sort of a, a theory i like to sort of posit is that i think like when you're a young reader in comic books you have that initial sort of entry point where you're just gen genuinely fascinated with just the whole experience of comic books just the look the feel of them mm -hmm. and it's not that you're not actively reading it when you're in what i call your single digits so like five six you know seven eight nine but yeah. you're taking in different parts of it. And so obviously I was able to ascertain in my limited understanding then that Excalibur, while within the X-Men universe and the larger Marvel universe, held its own little sort of corner in the sky. By the time Warren Ellis came onto the book, I was 10, specifically 11, when this particular issue came out. And I think that's when, once you get to your, your double digits, like 10, 11, 12, 13, I think that's when you begin to firm up your identity of who you are as a reader, like what you really like, what your sort of general sort of taste are. I mean, obviously these things can swing and change, but I think overall the sort of the, that core seed that's planted when you're younger sort of starts to expand. You begin to sort of lay out what appeals to you aesthetically. And for me, I just, I loved, I've always loved ensemble books. Um, there have been a few exceptions like Batman and Wonder Woman, but I always loved them within the context of the Justice League as well. So with X-Men, it was great because they were always doing different, you know, ensemble character, uh, ensemble books. And I just loved that with this particular run, that the characters just seemed to be sharper, a bit more fleshed out. Not that they weren't under, um, you know, 
Claremont and, and Alan Davis, I actually always felt that when, because I, I, I began to sort of go back when I was 10 and 11 and sort of reread those early issues to sort of understand what was happening. You know, if they would have like a little reference, like see this issue, I'd go back to my box and, and see what I had and kind of flip through it. And so I was able to sort of connect the dots. And it was just interesting to see these characters grow. And I think that was really the, the coolest thing about this arc was just the growth. I didn't mean to go off on a tangent there. I hope hopefully that made sense. No, it definitely made sense. Tangents are very allowed, especially when I know someone's particularly excited about this issue. I I do want to ask you about this issue in particular, and I'm like wondering if I should ask it now or whether I should do it as part of your first impressions, because you did request this issue specifically. So I'm curious about that. Um, Maybe let's do the issue summary and then I'll come right back to you with that question after we do that. And we'll, we'll, we'll fold it into some first impressions and give you another chance to go on absolutely as many tangents as you want, I promise. (laughs) Okay. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. I sincerely hope some of you are encountering this version of Kurt's costume for the first time. We can't hold your hand through your varied responses, but we can offer you a plot summary. Excalibur number 98 opens in the wake of Doug Locke's violent abduction by Black Air. Excalibur assembles to sort out a plan led by the tactical tutelage of one Kurt Wagner. Everyone concentrates intently on Kurt's words or his new costume, or one hopes a little of both. Pete Wisdom, as the resident expert on Black Air, explains there are two possible locations where the techno organic friend could be in the Black Air HQ in London or the acquisition station in North Yorkshire. His rare anger on display, Kurt opines that it's time they did a lot more acting instead of reacting, especially since it turns out everything Alistair Stewart told his friends about Black Air's nefarious motives was true. We proceed into a well-planned, very dramatic attack on the acquisition station in which each member has their own part to play, both in the hopes of finding Douglock and with the intent of causing as much damage as possible. Kitty, teleporting into the base with Kurt, successfully downloads Black Air's files onto the Midnight Runner's computer only to learn that Douglock is not inside the base, but in location number two, the Black Air HQ in London. Excalibur easily defeat the guards and scientists manning the station, and Kurt gives them five minutes to evacuate before Kurt tells Megan to send the station to the devil. Lucifer's got better things to do than help them with that, but Megan is up to the challenge, reaching out with her elemental powers to bury the acquisition station beneath the ground. Meanwhile, in London, Brian Braddock has spent several hours with the Black Queen, who told him everything he needs to know about the Inner Circle's current activities. When he leaves, he's visited by Scribe, who says she's scared of the club's strange plans and that it all started to go downhill when the Red Queen joined and that the Red King seems like a changed man. Brian wonders if this hints at the whereabouts of the shape-stealer Mountjoy, but is interrupted by some weird and wacky light effects over London. We conclude in a dark lab where two scientists are dissecting Douglock. In the process, they discover the secret legacy virus files buried beneath his programming. We'll be returning to that plot in subsequent issues. So Quentin, I said we were going to come right back to you and that's what exactly what we're going to do. I love that you mentioned character development because this is a very, despite being an action-heavy issue, I do think it's also a very character-driven issue in the sense that all the action kind of relates to character in a really effective way in this issue. But those are my first impressions. I want to hear yours. Why did you want to come and chat with us about this issue in particular? When I was a kid, I was obsessed with this particular run because there was a brief period after issue 42 where I kind of lost track of Excalibur and then I began to sort of go back Mm -hmm. and get the back issues and um, I was subsequently like traumatized when um, I realized what had happened to the team and they sort of kind of had like a kind of like what happened to the X-Men post Inferno when like the Outback Mm -hmm. team just falls apart and they're like scattered to the winds Mm -hmm. it was sort of like a mini version of that is the only thing I could think of Um, and so obviously like Rachel ends up leaving which was traumatic for me as a kid (laughs) But I still was intrigued by the stories then because, again, you know, like I said, just that seed had been planted. And so I continued to follow the book. And by this point, you know, I was getting a little like at like nine, ten, I was getting like a little like, you know, uh, allowances from my parents. So almost all of my allowance went into comic books. Oh. And once they kind of got into sort of the dream nails thing, like I think that's about issue 80. From that point on, I pretty much like Excalibur, like my three main X books, it was um, Uncanny, X-Men, Volume 2, and Excalibur were my main ones. I would get X-Force, Generation X, and X-Factor where I could. X-Man and Wolverine were kind of more on the sideline. I would get them if I could. But those were my three main X books. And so I just was obsessed with this arc because as, as just we moved into what I call the more, um, I don't want to say darker Excalibur, but a bit more complex because it was just interesting to see the characters growing and changing and to see people coming back. I missed Rachel, but I loved seeing just what they were doing with like um, Captain Britain and Megan. It was cool to see Wolfsbane kind of come over, um, especially after all of the events that had taken place in X-Factor with the Haven arc and all of that stuff toward, I think, issue like 90 through 100. I loved what they were doing with Kitty. I've often felt, and I know that Warren Ellis is, is problematic in many respects, 
But one thing I always oh, really yeah. liked about the way, at least as it came across to me in my, at, at 9, 10, and 11, and specifically later when I would reread these as an adult, is that he wrote Kitty as a sort of someone who was growing up. He didn't sort of yeah. um, infantilize her. Like, I remember when Joss mm-hmm. Whedon came on to do Astonishing X-Men, and I was just so appalled by the way he, he sort of reduced Kitty back to sort of that weird state that she was in when she was sort of like a junior mm-hmm. member of the team. And it was like all of the growth that she had undergone in Excalibur, and when she returned to the X-Men before he got back onto the book, was just undone. And I really liked seeing her grow and change and having her have complex relationships with people like Colossus and Peter Wisdom and sort of navigating that space. Yeah, so I mean, again, I know that's probably a long tangent, but this particular issue as a kid, just from a surface level, I just loved the look of Nightcrawler. I mean, he looked cool. It was a different look. I always loved his classic look, but it was interesting to see him sort of like evolving and changing. And within the larger context of that happening, I think there were a lot of sort of revamps happening or or on the horizon. Like I know Doctor Strange had had a revamp like a year or two before. Um, Superman had the big electric Superman uh, arc that took place, I think, a year later. And I and by the time that was about 25 years ago. So by that point, I was in junior high. I was 13. And I just enjoyed watching them just take different risks with the characters even if they just looped them back around to what they were because it helped push the character forward and help them grow. And that kind of growth was appealing to me as a reader. Oh yeah, absolutely. And as much as I've been making jokes about like Nightcrawler's costume, and I'm sure there'll be more, like it is an important symbol of what he's trying to do with the character here, right? Like, I mean, this is an issue that really foregrounds Kurt as a leader. And I think that that growth really comes across there. And that does stretch back to the to the Claremont and Davis era. I mean, we talked about his growth as a leader there as well. So, I mean, that is very satisfying to me as a Nightcrawler fan. I mean, I will be honest, it is very Euro trash swashbuckler, but that's kind of hot. <laughs> like, and, and I can yeah, admit being yeah. like, you know, as I've probably mentioned, you know, being like, you know, I was still kind of coming into my own sexual, you know, my own awakening as being gay. But I, it's interesting because I can look like the, the female characters uh, who I loved. I never looked at them in a sexual way. I just thought that, that they were like pretty and like, and, and just awesome. They, I didn't see, I didn't see their beauty as mutually exclusive with their strength. So I, I always mm-hmm. thought like, you know, female characters, they can be pretty and they can be strong. It's not a bad thing. But I sort of kind of had a crush not knowing, or I was interested in characters like Colossus and Nightcrawler and Peter Wisdom because they were so different and so interesting. And that's probably says a lot about the kind of men that I would probably grow go grow up to eventually date as I became older. Um, but yeah, the Euro Trash Washbuckler thing was was a look. But it was but it was cool. I mean, I, I dig it because you got you have to try new things. And even if it doesn't work, at least you try it. And then at least you know what does and what doesn't work. And I do think it helped move his character forward in a really interesting way. It's a swing. And I do strongly respect that it's a swing. And I know that there are many people who are big fans of this costume. And I am going to honor that in our discussion of it. I promise. Let me pick up some other first impressions and we'll get into a little bit more. Um, Andrew, how are you feeling about this one this week? I think this is a fantastic issue. I think it has no more plot than any Super Mario Brothers game. And I think that actually really works for it. It's just mm-hmm. our friend got taken. We're mad. Let's go rescue. And they, they've got this sense of acceleration in the pace that the book is. We've talked about the book kind of languishing for a little bit. Um, there's an extensive acceleration there. The entire team minus Brian is together and doing stuff. And most importantly, they have an illustrator who Amanda's not there. You didn't even notice. Pace. Oh, God. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> it was a note of mine but yeah go ahead <laughs> they do have like this this position of prominence in marvel for the first time since davis left where the elite visual artistry the sort of prestige comic is excalibur again and that's that's a really good position for them to be in and i think ellis responds to it really well as i said the plot's not doing much but it doesn't have to the character beats are fantastic there's there's just a lot happening here there's a lot to talk about so this will be this will be fun good i'm glad that we're coming in with some positive energy this week how are you doing mav what are your first impressions first impression okay so i, I i'd like to return you just briefly because it's part of my first impression to excalibur number 76 excalibur number 76 is uh we we spoke at length on that issue an issue by ken lashley whose whose art i actually like as i said back then i i, I think ken lashley is very interesting for the 90s artist and I enjoy his work but I made a comment during that episode about how I was constantly distracted by the absence of Nightcrawler's penis 
because uh, <laughs> okay. I said yeah. he has kind of a, a Barbie doll like smoothness, I believe I said. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's distracting because Lashley will draw like every muscle in a body to intricate detail. If you've got ribs, I want to see every rib. I want to, you know, I want I want to get the the impression, the outline of every hair. This is a thing that Lashley did, but I'm not into cock and, I, and therefore no penises. Kendall Smooth. That was how Lashley drew Nightcrawler in his classic outfit. Now we have fast forwarded a, a scant two years of publication. And and now we have Carlos Pacheco, who loves Nightcrawler's penis. There's no <laughs> <laughs> there's no other way <laughs> to say it. I have to believe that he got on this book. And he said, the problem with Excalibur is that for 97 issues, we have not played, paid enough attention to Nightcrawler's cock. <laughs> no more. We are focusing on that from here on oh. out. And that is what I believe must have happened. Now, I have other feelings about this book. I, and for, just so, just to get it out of the way, I actually pretty much agree with Andrew in that it is a very simplistic plot. It, it's straightforward and I actually like it. I think it moves the story along. I think it is a mm -hmm. very good first issue to a trilogy. Spoilers for next week where I don't feel that way, but um, about the second issue, but like, I think it's good for what it is as a, Hey, let's get the ball running. We're going to start the, we're going to start the quest kind of story. And they're all there except for Amanda and Brian, but that's not the first impression. The first impression is you pick up this book and you don't even notice that Kurt has a new a new costume at first. What you notice is there's his cock. That, that is the focal <laughs> point. It is the dead center of the book. And I don't see how anything else can possibly be the first impression. Yeah, I first impression. <laughs> That that's what it is, and and let's be honest about it because it's right in the center of the page. I mean, it's on the cover. I mean, I as you were talking, I made the mistake of checking my phone. So Adam texted me a photoshopped image of Nightcrawler that is very relevant to this discussion. It's like, oh my god! But I guess that's what we're talking about anyway. But like, yeah, I mean, it's like right there on the cover, right? <laughs> I mean, it is a dramatic change from the way Ken Lashley rendered the character. And yeah, obviously, yes. I want to talk about it. And I don't so even want to talk about it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I, I, okay, well, I might as well say my thoughts about it, my, my general thoughts about it, about the sexualization of the costume, because, you know, I keep making little references to it. So let's just talk about it. Like, for me, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this costume, clearly. I mean, this is a character the objectification of which I have talked about in great detail elsewhere and on this very podcast. We opened this, like we opened this podcast in our discussion of Excalibur number one with a lengthy discussion of Nightcrawler in the bath and the presence and absence of his penis in that scene. So this is really in our wheelhouse. But the thing I always think about with this costume is like how it sort of distills so many of those conversations we've had about the objectification of this character in terms of like his presumed monstrousness that lets you get away with a certain type of sexualization that I don't think you would necessarily get away with with another type of male character because <sighs> here's the thing I agree with you that that's what's emphasized and this must be an interest of Pacheco's because he wanted to draw it like this he designed the costume in this way to emphasize this it has the red arrow directly to his penis yeah. as if it wasn't enough mm -hmm. emphasized in the costume itself and yet it's so unusual to have a male character depicted this way that I have to think it went under the radar in some way. Like there's a presumption that it's not sexual because it's this particular character because it is just so unusual for a male character to be rendered this way that I almost feel like it must be an accident or something. How? How? I know. Because I know that. Get, I know that. I was there. I bought this off the shelf. And like, <laughs> I mean... This is not like me, you know, 2023 me analyzing it with the PhD lenses for the show. I remember buying this and going, oh, Lord, there's his cock. Like, that's <laughs> a lot. And it's not it's almost like there's a way of rendering the superhero win boob, which is almost you know often cartoony in its abstractness right like it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah, hey yeah. here is a balloon that is on your and there is a way of rendering the superhero penis 
which is sort of like that. There is a nondescript bulge that occurs in the groinal area, right? That is a thing that is- Like an underwear mannequin. It's like the body of an underwear mannequin at a department store. And that is, yeah, yeah. For for both the boobs and for the penis, like both, Mm -hmm. right? Like that that is a trope of the genre. That was not done here. This is an outfit that was designed, like it's not form fitting, it is intentionally baggy enough to give the outline. That's a choice that Pacheco made. <laughs> that is a it's an interesting choice. And like I don't understand how he managed to get that approved. Well, that's by, what I'm saying. Yeah, like like I like you said it could have been under it must have been under the radar. This was a code approved book. Bob Harris was editing. There's no way he didn't see it. Like, how do you not? Because it's the first thing. That, that's why I made it my first impression. You pick up the book and, oh, my God, you don't see that every day. Like, like I don't see how you not how you can not notice it because it is so present. And again, continues throughout the book. But I mean, to me, as a scholar of superhero sexuality, like it makes me think of two things. Like, it makes me think that the disavowal of sexuality and like genitalia mm-hmm. specifically in this space is so strong that it's unseeable to people who are editing a book like this who <laughs> presumably wouldn't normally approve that type of thing or it's like maybe this is the exception that like proves all the presumptions we had about this space being you know homophobic you know misogynist like whatever maybe it's all not true because look we have this costume on nightcrawler and everybody was fine with it like i don't know i think i'm more i'm more inclined to believe the first one than the second one but maybe i don't know it's just i can't and also because it went on for several months they they tried to make this outfit work for a while Mm -hmm. right it makes me believe even if you missed it on the first issue right there were still letters being written at this point (laughs) someone pointed this out i i think it's a brave choice i think it is cool to do it regardless of how you feel about the design like and we're going to talk about the other aspects of it but i just think that the acknowledgement of the body as a sexual device is more present here than i think anything in mainstream marvel at the time and frankly mostly today like this is this yeah. is beyond what we get with the swimsuit issues. Yeah. Mostly what we get I, with the swimsuit I, issues. I mean Kurt's wearing <laughs> There's a couple, Kurt's wearing like yes. Kurt's wearing board shorts in the swimsuit issues and he's showing mm-hmm. up in this comic dressed like this. I mean it's mm-hmm. it's wild. But um I don't know. Let me come back to you with it, Quentin. You can talk about the sexiness of the costume if you want, or other aspects of it if you want. I mean, we already like talked a little bit about character. You can take it in that direction if you want. But I mean, does this costume stand out to you as being a very unusual costume in this space. I guess maybe I'll put it that As way. As an 11-year-old like kid who was yeah. trying to... Like, <laughs> what's interesting listening to you all talk about it is that thinking back, I actually wasn't paying attention to his crotch area. I was actually fascinated with yeah, his yeah. torso mm-hmm. up to his shoulders and his face. That was the part of that okay. scene when it is a strike. The image is striking like in its totality, but where my eyes were focused and I can remember when I was a kid was his torso like from the X belt up and his shoulders and his face. I just thought, mm-hmm. he, he, and this is going to sound odd for him being, you know, obviously a, 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 a hand-drawn character. He was, I thought he was a beautiful man. I was like, wow, like he's, at least that's what I'm yeah. thinking in retro. I'm trying to sort of give words to it and, and you know, uh, in mm-hmm. retrospect, because, you know, even in, at that time, you know, obviously I knew that to have those feelings was strange or awkward. And it's like, why, you know, like, obviously, like, I think Megan, who to the left, I'm also fascinated by because she's beautiful with the cascading hair, some of which is in her hand and is over her legs. Mm-hmm. And she's just fabulous. And we love her for it. Mm-hmm. I just thought that Nightcrawler was really cool. And I felt that the intensity of the image was matched by the intensity of the script. And it yeah. made me more like, I think for the first time ever during this particular arc, like I've always liked Kurt's character, but I was actually like really drawn to like, wow, like he's really like assertive, but not in like a boorish way and like a very articulate yeah. intellectual, but he's putting it in that more traditional superhero assertive way. And so all of the different shots of him from mm-hmm. the cover, to even when you go through the book and you're seeing him when he's with the team, it's just, you know, the jawline, the earring, you know, the haircut, the soul patch or the or the the, the stubble on the chin. 
it's it's just it's interesting. I, I just thought it was great, and, and just and you know Carlos, the late Carlos Pacheco, who I just loved. I loved his artwork. I was devastated when he passed. I actually shed a few tears. It upset me so bad. Um, and I put up a little Instagram tribute, and this is I think one of the books I think I pulled out to snap a picture of. You know, so I just I loved what he did with the character, but I, I loved that sometimes you read a book and the art will be fantastic, but the script is terrible. And then sometimes you read a book and the script is great, but the artwork is awful. I love that everything in this book is in sync it's synchronal and i felt like for what they were the direction they were taking kurt to give him more authority and more agency both as the leader of the group and even just as becoming even more of a pronounced sex symbol even if they weren't saying it out loud like you know yes he's a sex symbol obviously like you know the crotch i mean we can say that now objectively yes um it was crotch o'clock um but um you know (laughs) But I mean, I think the like I said, I still think like the shot of his torso with him. It's it's sexy, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like to me. It doesn't feel like trashy or salacious. It just feels like authoritative. Yeah. And you know, I think when you're for me when you're when you're gay or queer and you're sort of coming into that and you're looking for you're you're finding your way in that space. Like that was how I found it because I was afraid to sort of do that in the real world with like real guys around me. Because again, I was only eleven. But in the comic book space, it felt a bit more safe. So, yeah. Again, I hope that makes sense. I didn't like dabble too much. Oh, totally. No, that 100% makes sense. And I think the thing that you're picking up on that I do think is important to emphasize is that it's not it's not just the crotch stuff, right? It's like the aestheticization of this character in general, right? And I think you're absolutely right that he's drawn very beautifully here. And like, it's all the aspects of the character. I mean, the costume has like these flowy aspects. It's exposing a lot of his chest, right? And I mean, even like the detail of his new facial hair, the earring, as you said, we haven't talked about the earring. Like the way he's rendered on this panel too. To, you know the team is on one side and we get the highly aestheticized you know long panel of Kurt that's really showing off his body and even the way he's posed as you're saying and there are like lens flares on the two X's on his costume making him that much more spectacular like he's almost too shiny to look oh, at right so he's distracting just, to the eye literally. I'm so glad I was a kid during this period like people like dunk on the 90s <laughs> But like, I have to tell you as a Mm -hmm. kid and as an X-Men fan, there was nothing like that period, Mm -hmm. nothing. It was just 91 to like 98. June, like July of 90, it was just, it was just uh, breathtaking. I'm so glad I got to be a kid. <laughs> yeah, I think people are wrong to dunk on them, honestly. I mean, I think that is, it is very much a looking at it through a 2023 lens and trying to like where comics were and for what they were trying to do, even the most exploitative of image books at that time was doing a thing that I think was right for where the fan base was at that time. Now, was it problematic? Yes. Did it cause future problems? Yes. I, I think it's really weird to like say, oh, well, I always hated this because like you didn't. Like Rob Liefeld was making millions and millions and millions of dollars. Like the industry would not have developed had it not been for that period. So I think that there, I think there's a lot of useful stuff. And I think part of that is the acceptance of sexualization of characters, both male and female. And for for however you feel about like the artwork of the 90s excess this was an acceptance of sexuality that the 80s did not have it, it just was and there's no other way to look at it so i think that's worth noticing and i think that particularly for form dominated by depictions of the male form you know there's we we tend to focus on the exploitative way female characters are portrayed in comics but like there's a lot of male characters and i think it is important to recognize that in both good and bad ways so you're pointing out the good that's cool yeah that's a that's a that's a very positive spin on it i like it i mean andrew we haven't given you a chance to talk about the costume at all do you want to get any thoughts on the record here before we talk about a few other things um i I, don't, I think all of my thoughts have already been been said by everyone else. I'm, I'm in complete agreement. I think it's a it's a foregrounding of sexuality in Excalibur, uh, and Kurt is the right character to do that for a variety of reasons. And um, maybe as Quentin was suggesting, I don't I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like the the way that the script was having Kurt be this very authoritative leader figure, showing tremendous confidence, showing tremendous awareness of his team, yeah. At the same time that he's getting this this strong visual redesign to me that that speaks to the the simultaneity that quentin was talking about as well i i think you need both pieces happening at the same time and i think that's what makes this sudden costume reveal especially powerful 
the narrative attachment to it. Yeah. And I mean, I love that you said the word confidence specifically, right? Because I mean, I do like that this choice that this character makes to represent himself in this way goes hand in hand with his growing confidence as a leader. And I do find that really Mm -hmm. interesting from a character perspective. I don't know that the writing of Kurt under Ellis really goes to a place where I think the sexiness or the sexuality of the character, he doesn't really do a lot with it. But in terms of like the visualization that's provided with Pacheco and how we can read into that from that visualization, that does excite me. I do. I'm on board. I personally don't love the costume. (laughs) There's a very subjective personal opinion, but at the same time, I do appreciate the massive swing. I love that it relates to the character's confidence. I love that it relates to what makes this character interesting and special and different as a male sex symbol in this space. So on that level, I'm here for it. I'm looking forward to some to some other discussions of it as we continue to interact with this costume in the in the weeks ahead. Can I ask you some a question about the non-penis aesthetics of it? <laughs> there are some things that I like about it, and there are things that I don't like about it because for me my problem i actually like the outfit i think it works really well the problem i have with it is it doesn't look like kurt it doesn't look like the character of kurt that we'd known for 30 years at that point 20 years at that point and it doesn't look like the character that he has developed into since then and it also doesn't match the aesthetic that the rest of the book was going i think this is fine for even though I like the outfit that he actually used there, this is fine for the Kurt Kurt Wagner warlord world, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it is, it's trying to be a swashbuckler in a way that doesn't fit with the much heavier technologically inclined outfits that the rest of the characters were using. So that's my problem with it. I also find it interesting that it does things like, like we've talked about about the shorter haircut and the soul patch, which were done for Amanda, who's not in this issue. Um, we've talked about that before, but I like things like, I like the the trying to do the earring, which poses a particular problem as someone who's drawn comics before. Like I drew, I wrote and drew, you know, I worked on a book for several years, a webcomic called Cosmic Hellcats, which was about cat people from space. And anytime we try <laughs> to do earrings or eyeglasses, it's hard because eyeglasses and earrings are a design that was made for human faces. So when you end up putting an earring on a non-human shaped ear, you go, that looks a little not exactly right. <laughs> and and I, I and I like that Pacheco is trying those things. So to me, it's interesting and almost brave as an artist like he's taking swings that i appreciate but i understand how this doesn't look like the character at all so i'm kind of curious as to again outside of the sexualization issues where do you fall for it aesthetically um i just there's a believability to the costume that i get hung up on because this is an acrobatic character like a movement oriented character and this kind of like flowy drapey thing doesn't make a sense to me aesthetically and movement and practicality wise it's not the costumes have to be practical but i just can't really imagine him doing the kind of poses and flips and stuff that he normally does in this kind of flowy costume that looks like it's gonna just fall over his head if he goes upside down so there's just like sort of practical issues i have with it and also the sword as much as i love the look of it i mean when you think about the fight scene later in the issue he has the sword out but what is he doing with the sword he's not stabbing anybody (laughs) so i mean like i think it looks cool I think there's a believability issue for me, which I don't want to get too hung up on because I'm in a positive mood this week. I do love <laughs> the way Pacheco draws Kurt in general. But yeah, that when I said that I subjectively don't love the costume for myself, that, that's some of what I get hung up on. Gotcha. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. That's a, a purely subjective opinion. <laughs> Again, we can revisit the costume. We're going to have more views of it. And I think it'll be interesting yeah. to talk about Casey Jones's depiction of the costume, too, because I do think this is such a Pacheco costume and it just looks way better when Pacheco draws it. and It doesn't look good when anybody else draws it. But um, <laughs> we can maybe revisit that in the next issue. Can, um, can I say something about Pacheco's version of Kurt please, that I really like? Please. So not necessarily related to fashion, although it might loop in there a little bit. Um, You've talked a lot, Anna, about um, Kurt's monster 
monstrosity uh, and the way that it can be foregrounded in kind of powerful or sexy ways or fearful ways. This is kind of powerful, confident monstrosity in Kurt. Like there's a lot of elements to it that are clearly not designed to just look like a normal human being, um, but there's a swagger to it that I kind mm -hmm. of love. Oh yeah. I mean, like after the battle where he's like standing over the guys with like one leg up and like the sword dramatically bent, I mean, looks great. Like he's drawing yeah, yeah. him like a swashbuckler in poses like that. And I mean, yeah, I mean the skill with the facial expression too. I mean, I do like the way that Kurt moves through a lot of different emotional moods in this comic. Like we do have panels where he looks quite beautiful, although still quite sort of serious and aggressive throughout this issue. But still we get like the panels of him baring his teeth at the enemy and stuff, but also sort of quieter panels where he's talking with the team. I mean, we've talked before about how, how artists love drawing Nightcrawler. And I feel like this is like Pacheco falling in love with drawing Nightcrawler in this issue. This is really the point where I feel like he nailed his version of the character. And that's exciting to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about Kitty and Megan, because I know Quentin wants to talk about those two characters. And I am very interested in the depiction of both of them in this issue, because they both get some really cool moments. So yeah, let's talk about it. Quentin, what do you like about, about Kitty and Megan's involvement in this master plan? Um, so I just want to be on record as saying that I think 19, like Shadowcat from like 94 to about like 99 is my favorite or on the whole not that there aren't Aww. stumbles mm -hmm. along the way but again i like that yeah. and it's not that i didn't like what they were doing with her earlier but i like it was time to move her forward and so everything particularly i think mm -hmm. under warns him steering her it's about helping her to grow up it, she feels like someone who at this point i would assume is like 18 19 20 21 somewhere in there and because she's lived mm -hmm. like for lifetimes because of the kind of life that she's led um as this costume adventurer you know she's been attacked by the brood she's <laughs> she's been off world on you know so she's she's very wise around her years and i think that comes through but she hasn't lost that pluck and the uh, and the the vividness to her that i love so like you see her like i think there's a great shot of her when they when they tap into the computer system we're in just the playful way again in which mm -hmm. carlos is in sync with warren's script it just captures that energy where again she's powerful she's intelligent and she's feminine and none of those things have to be um, mutually exclusive she manages to be all of those things and i love that about her or i love her fingers yes. on the keys like she's just like they're dancing over the keys in such a playful way no no anyway, no sorry. no absolutely i think there's also a great scene mentioning hands where she punches one of the guards she's like lay down and again and you know shadow cat she's you know she through the kitty and wolverine miniseries and the whole ogon thing she is a trained she's got that martial arts experience and so we get to see her use that and i love that but again she still has her mind so i think it's again it's that blend moving on to megan i've always loved megan's character because i've always felt that she brought a softness and a humanity to anything that she was ever in mm. but there was a period where i think they just didn't know what to do with her and so like that was one of those things when i was a kid yeah. when she was like waiting for brian when he was lost in the time stream and she was like catatonic in, the, in that little stream outside braddock manor it was just so pitiful and so sad and then she went through that weird like wraith <laughs> period where she's just floating around and threatening poor rachel and and then it seems oh. as if when warren got to her to her he didn't try to sort of course correct her i think he just tried to sort of take her forward and you know by this time she's assimilated into the team i think she's she she's kind of learned some of the more ways she's more socialized and so i i like that we see more of her brightness and her intelligence and i like what they did with the power update i don't know if you guys remember this but in the trading cards um that they did in 95 they attempted to give her a code name called tapestry oh, yeah. it never stuck yeah. i don't ever remember seeing it only appears there it is the only it, it appears there and in her entries in marvel universe handbooks but like it it has never been used on page during any of the books like it was a it was clearly an editorial decision and then just no one actually ever did it which i get because they mostly don't say it's hard in excalibur because no one ever uses their code names like they they don't say nightcrawler you just know it's his name because it had been for 20 years mm -hmm. they mostly call him kurt they mostly call her megan they mostly call brian brian they most they never say Sh uh, shadow cat like shadow cat and and gene gray are, are, or kitty pride and gene gray are those two characters where their code names just eventually disappeared but I, I went looking and did a research thing on it where I because I was really curious a while back. And as far as I can tell, and other people who have been wondering this on the internet, it was never used yeah. in the story. It's only used in, the, in those trades. As I remember, yeah. never seeing it. But I just love... I loved the elemental thing. I remember particularly seeing it in this issue, the way it sort of starts with her eyes in the one panel. It was, it's breathtaking. It was, she, Megan was kind of cool, but she was still sensitive. 
and she still had that humanity about her. And so again, I think Warren took some time to really try in his own flawed way to try to move her forward. Um, and so I can appreciate the overall arc of that. And again, as like a, as a 10, 11 year old who had always liked her character, it was just great to see her kind of in there shoulder to shoulder with her other teammates and she's pulling her weight and doing her thing and, and she's fabulous doing it. So, and I still, I still love it. I still love it. Rereading it ahead of the, uh, conversation here. It just, I was like, wow, like I just, I love her in this issue. She's just great. Yeah. It made me think a lot about how much like an artist obviously affects how you interpret a character because we've had gripes on the podcast in the past about the changes to Megan, you know, giving her kind of point and shoot powers and, you know, how that's a little bit different than some of the powers she had before, even though she's technically much more powerful in this iteration of the character. But the way that Pacheco draws her throughout this issue, like he gives her some really neat kind of power poses where she does look very powerful to me. I mean, the scene where she's flying, carrying everybody, there's like a nice, like weird perspective one of like looking down as she's diving and even the one where she's, you know, doing the cast an elemental spell thing to like explode everything i mean she looks very beautiful there but it also struck me as a very powerful pose and the way it's rendered like it's not just reducible to her objectification in that image the way it can sometimes be in another artist's rendering of it and so i really found myself thinking a lot about that here like the way Pacheco renders her here did a lot to sort of assuage my fears about some of the changes to this character. And I really liked her in this issue as well. And I really like the thing mm -hmm. that becomes clear when it's rendered well, like the way there's been a role reversal between Megan and Brian, like Megan is here on the team being the powerhouse character, right? And there's even that great line later in the issue where like, you know, what would we do? without you Megan like Kurt says to Megan what will we do without you and she's like oh probably spend a lot of money on bulldozers <laughs> like she's the bulldozer yeah. on the team and I thought that was a great line and a great exchange for Kurt and Megan specifically to have too because as much as you know part of me will always root for Kurt and Megan as a couple like still yeah. it shows them moving forward in their relationship and like having more of a teammate friendship kind of relationship that I think has been missing for those characters for a long time too so that little exchange really meant a lot to me and then of course in the same issue we have brian doing the soft skill thing he's at the hellfire club you know talking to people doing the sexy thing to some extent using his sexual appeal to get entry into this space well megan is out here being the bulldozer and i do like that as a choice for these characters like does it always work for me in every single issue? No. Does it work for me in this particular issue? Yeah, it works for me in this particular issue. I like this one. Mm -hmm. This issue sold me on it. I mean, I'm curious about your thoughts, Andrew. Like, am I selling you on it in this particular issue? <laughs> am I selling no, you on the new Megan this one time? Yeah, I think so. Because I'm on board too, just, just reading this. I, I do want to nitpick just a little bit. Um, One of the things that I, I was finding, because I'm not like, I'm enjoying the experience. I'm loving the depiction of Megan. I'm loving the moments, the character piece, all that kind of stuff. I'm happy with Megan for the first time in a long time in, in reading Excalibur. But just to like kind of undermine it a little bit, one of the things that I don't like when you have a powerhouse female character is when they function as a tool of a confident male leader figure without mm. any sort of commentary on their thoughts or emotions in regards to their powers, mm. if that makes sense. So just to give you an example of this, think about like in X-Men, when we're doing the Phoenix saga, the extent to which Jean Grey is constantly subverting Cyclops uh, and like, like very very much trying to like tamp down her powers to avoid symbolically emasculating him or something that's a really good beat i find that megan just sort of does what she's told a little unproblematically um but this is a massive step forward for the character she is in my opinion very empowered uh in this scene i just want a little bit more reaction from her a little bit more focus on her agency and i know ellis isn't there as a writer yet but as i said this is a massive leap forward for him in his, his work with megan and i really enjoyed it yeah i can see that i mean we have a lot of like kurt ordering everybody around in this issue mm -hmm. and yeah so i can i can see that critique of it with megan in particular well we're moving into the era of the death of the thought balloon so that makes it harder mm -hmm. with everybody now we will get to the era of the you know the explosion of the thought caption but that was never big in excalibur and it's a little ways off like so we're just in this we're just in this period where people think less and less in comics and to where, you know, by 2023, thought balloons are super rare, right? Like, like it never happens. So that makes the internal monologue of a character in the midst of a conversation with other characters 
very, very difficult. Back in the 80s, this fight would be going on and everyone would be having constant thoughts about what does it mean to have to be ordered around and also what's going on in my own interpersonal relationship and also, hey, I have a subplot with a character that's not even in this issue, but I've got to mention it so that you still remember it. Like those things would have happened in like a in like a Claremont era book and that's not happening anymore. So it makes, I think, understanding her a little uh, understanding her positionality a little harder yeah i mean that's fair too i mean i was gonna move to final thoughts but maybe let's talk about the brian of this all a little bit first because it occurred to me that we had a lot of complaints in the last couple of issues about the brian hellfire club plot in the sense that <laughs> i mean i have been reading the issues in order i like skip ahead obviously for the sake of of booking and trying to get the right guests for the right issues but this scene with brian at the end of this one addressed a lot of our specific complaints it seems to be about the portrayal mm. of the hellfire club and so in excalibur number 97 we complained that oh it's strange that he's not tempted by the sexuality of this space it's strange that like his drinking problem doesn't come up and i was like oh shoot both of those things come up here <laughs> yeah. and then i was like yeah. well <laughs> i'm wrong <laughs> and i liked, well, I mean, I liked it, had, it hadn't before posted. yeah i know it hadn't before and it has now and um so what do you think okay did he sleep his way into the hellfire club <laughs> unclear because maybe because well no because the thing is i don't think we're supposed to think he did right except that i have read the previous no, 97 issues yeah like i've read the previous 97 issues i know that brian is not above cheating on megan for fun and like there's an actual mission here and also i know what the hellfire club is you know like we've talked about it so it would be odd if he didn't i don't think he did <laughs> you know? like i mean it would also be well it also i mean i think i think if he doesn't then it shows some growth for the character but then yeah. i want to know that like if, if he doesn't have to have sex with anybody then i want to know how he's negotiating it in oh just okay so uh, a movie that like i people don't necessarily like as much but i think is very interesting the second kingsman movie if you actually if you've ever seen it in kingsman yeah. 2 one of the of the subplots as it were is that eggsy is in a committed relationship so he's kind of not willing to do the spy thing where you have to seduce somebody and it really it compromises the mission because like they're like okay you need to take her to bed and he can't bring himself to do it because that would mean cheating on his girlfriend which not that it's a great movie but it's an interesting commentary on the world that is a james bond story right like in the world of super spies you have to be willing to bang anybody at a moment's notice or it doesn't you know that's just that's what James Bond has to be able has to be willing to do, and it's interesting or roll that a doll, he can't. As it turns out, sure, yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> but, yes, but you but you have to be able to be willing to do that, and that's addressed there. Here, I mean, am I to believe that he is grown so he would never cheat on Megan, so he didn't sleep with anybody to get into the Hellfire Club, but he somehow managed to, and also he's taken it back and he is drinking now. Because well, but it's trying it's trying to have it both ways because it's definitely right. hinting at. It. It, right like several right. hours have passed it has been a stimulating time but then further down the page Do like disturb she, yeah but yeah, she leaves this hotel room taking her veiled comments with her he saw how cheap they were but they were still strangely compelling so like i mean that could go either way right but i mean quentin you're saying that you think that where brian is right now no i mean in that. the next panel it says that he couldn't refuse the drink which would have been bad form so i think what i like about this yeah. and what i read, read right. into it is that it's a bit of both I think he managed to res he's managed to resist temptation in terms of any physical infidelity. I think he'd find that he's intelligent or charming enough to work his way around that. But the other parts of the vices, the co the compliments, the drinks, just being in that space with like other rich, privileged like white folks uh, in the UK. <laughs> Um, like in that way, it's yeah. still very much a part of a, a space that he still can be uh, vulnerable to. And I think that's a much yeah. more yeah, complex and entertaining story it. to tell for at least as I read it, because it mm -hmm. shows that he's a character who is constantly, he's in flux, he's growing and changing, but that doesn't mean he's above 
temptation. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting mm-hmm. it. And I think that that's totally fair. You know, there are all these other temptations present here in addition to the sexual temptation. Let's go to some final thoughts. I'm sure there's stuff from this issue that we didn't talk about. And I'd love to talk about some of our favorite Pacheco images and stuff if that enters into our final thoughts. I'm certainly going to highlight a couple of them in mine. But let's start with you, Andrew. Anything that you wanted to circle back to or any moments from this comic or dynamics that you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance? Um, yeah, just, just a little bit with the scripting because I'm on record as when Ellis is on, I really like his scripting. Um, the one line that I really liked in this one was um, Kitty and I think Pete Wisdom are talking about, you know, Kurt doesn't get angry very often. And yeah. Kitty says, but when he does and does mm-hmm. not finish that sentence. I love that. That's a very confident writer uh, doing this sort of show don't tell thing really, really effectively. Um then the, the other thing that showed a lot of confidence to me was I, I love but I hate but I love that I hate that situation where Kurt and Kitty are about to talk about Pete Wisdom and what she sees in him and it gets cut off by an action scene mm. that's also really confident because you're setting up this cool character moment and you're deliberately hitting the delay of anticipation button um, so yeah and all, all those little beats that he was able to strike during what is essentially an extended action scene um, I thought Ellis was doing some really good work here and as I said he had the greatest illustrator to compliment that yeah, and I like the way the different missions that the characters are put on, you know, within within this action scene, yeah. like speaks to character too, because, you know, they have to do the things that, <laughs> I mean, fit their powers, but of course their powers relate to their personalities. So like Pete just has to cause maximum damage, which is sort of an interesting character beat for him because that was the trauma that we get introduced to this character with, you know, he doesn't want to be doing that and yet he's doing it for a different cause here. So that's a good beat for him. You know, Colossus is the powerhouse but it's also speaking to his loyalty to this new team so you get the character building through his physical presence here which i think is a good story beat i like kitty and kurt teaming up to do more of the stealth part of the mission that's also another Mm -hmm. really great character beat and then yeah there's like little stuff between there too of like you see pete working through his thoughts about colossus like throughout the action scene like oh i could let colossus take some more bullets but i guess i'll jump in because kitty would be upset if i didn't and sort of coming to terms with that so yeah there's just some really great great character work sort of threaded throughout here and i already said that i liked the exchange that kurt and megan have a lot as well how about you mav anything you want to bring up or circle back to yeah um so you said you were wondering if anybody would bring up carlos pacheco and yes i am (laughs) because uh the thing that i aside from my first impression end on my um my final impression which is to look at the opposite side of that the literal opposite side of that which is to say carlos pacheco seems to love a good ass (laughs) there is a lot in this particular issue yeah the megan shot oh no 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 see you'd want to say hey there's the megan shot and therefore it's just megan but then if you flip to the literal (laughs) next page you get the same shot but of colossus's butt equal opportunity yeah and then so he's got you know you got you got megan's butt and then like literally the you got a match shot of of, of colossus on the next page and then if you go another couple page, pages it's smaller but you get to see rain's butt there's um a page before that you see wisdom but it's in shadow it's not and you know but like let's face it pete pete doesn't have it going on as much in in, in, in the rear so you know no no, no sense in wasting <laughs> ink on it but he's kind of a flat ass, you know. There's a there's also a lot of there, you don't really get a good shot of Kitty or Kurt, but you know, there's a lot of side shots of them. The camera in much of this book appears to be either third person behind, you know, the the Lara Croft video game view, famously, or right over the shoulder. There's a mm-hmm. lot of that. So there's a lot of rear ends just throughout this, which is an interesting stylistic choice that I think is even with the Megan one, for me, it doesn't feel objectifying in the same way as most yeah. 90s art feels objectifying. It is objectifying. I would argue that that is, in fact, <laughs> I literally wrote a whole dissertation about how that's part of the point of the superhero artwork, right? Like it is sexuality through physical form. But I think it works, especially since he's very intentionally doing it for every character in the book. So yeah. a lot of ass. That was my my, my final thought. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like 
works hand in hand with kind of the dynamism. So to me, it's not reducible to objectification. It sort of serves the entire texture mm-hmm. of the work in a way that I found a little bit more effective. I mean, I have to point out too that you mentioned Pete Wisdom having a pancake butt and he does break his ass when he falls, indicating he doesn't have sufficient cushioning back there. So I feel like that's supported <laughs> by the text. He's broken his bum, as he says, when he falls on one of those pages. He's a skinny white boy. If you're going to have the skinny white mm-hmm. boy character as your new main character, then he should have the weaknesses as well as the strengths. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, most of my thoughts were about Pacheco, too. I mean, the thing that I noticed more than butts was hands, like how much storytelling Mm -hmm. he's doing with hands. And I mean, we talked about hands with with the episode that we did with Adam Excalibur number 95. But it was really Mm -hmm. noticeable to me here. Like, there's a number of panels where the hands are really a focus. You know, I've got the same Mm -hmm. page where where Pete Wisdom is falling and you have Kurt and Megan's hands in the foreground and, you know, him reaching towards her and even like the single finger of his reaching towards her hands, reaching up to his and how much storytelling is happening there and there's even sort of a shadow on Kurt's hand that almost looks like a tear coming from Megan there's just like a lot of really nice visual physical storytelling and there's another really great panel with Kitty and and Kurt's hands meeting yeah Mm -hmm. like as they're about to teleport and that's always great with Kurt's hands right because Kurt's hands obviously are very visually distinctive and so we can recognize those characters just based on their hands in that panel it's a wonderful panel and then just also occurred to me like talking about sort of I am going to reduce it to kind of like a good use of excess. We never want to say good or bad, but at the same time, I remember when we talked about Excalibur Air Apparent, and there was this Ron Lim shot of all the characters jumping out of an airplane or a helicopter or flying device of some kind, and they were all just kind of statically suspended in space. And we talked about how frustrating that kind of image is because, like, great, you rendered all of these nicely drawn bodies, but you didn't give us a sense of dynamism because they're just floating in air. And the one where they're jumping out of the plane here, I already mentioned it but like Megan is carrying everybody with her arm outstretched and the ways that they're all holding on to Megan speaks to character so not only does it give us sort of a physical reality as they're flying through this space in this completely improbable way it like also tells us about their characters you know Rain is like (laughs) clutching hard we've had it established that she sort of doesn't like heights you know Pete too is like wrapped all the way around Megan because he's a squishy human as we talked about and Colossus is just like holding on with a couple of fingers to her belt right (laughs) so it both speaks to Megan's power and I think it's a really cool image because she is this like very graceful beautiful woman who is clearly very powerful because she can lift all of these humans as she's flying I mean mutants as she's flying but still I I thought that was another really great bit of visual storytelling where again you have the excess you have the impossibility but there's sort of a character-based physical groundedness to the way he renders it here that I think really speaks to his skill as an artist and what I really love about Pacheco as an artist but anyway Quentin we're coming to you for some final thoughts about this issue any other moments or dynamics that you would like to spend some um, more time I mean, on the artwork is just fluid and beautiful which I just love it's still um yeah it's still yeah. one of my favorite like issues from that period and you know and I love it as much as an adult but it, it does transport me back you know to just sort of sitting in my bed my when my brother and I still shared a room on our little half a double on Adelaide in, in West Dayton, Ohio. And uh, I just, it was just a great, great, I love, I, I, I think I read my original copy of this until it, again, it somewhat fell apart. And then eventually when I began to more seriously collect two or three years later, I went back and purchased the back issue. And that's the clean copy I have now that's in like great shape. I also like, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that was interesting around this time was um, how they were beginning to deconstruct because I always felt like the X teams were so organized at the outset of the nineties. I loved it. Like every character had their little like slot and they were sort of deconstructing X factor, which I didn't like. And I still don't like that arc. X force was kind of going (laughs) through a similar thing, but there were more interesting character beats with how they were doing it. But what I loved about um, Excalibur and where I have always loved at the core of the X-Men books is just sort of the found family dynamic or just the fact that all of these different adults are sharing the space and while they may not always get along things may not always click when it gets down to it they're there for each other and I love that this book captures this particular iteration of Excalibur in just perfect synchronicity like everyone's working together everyone is sort of embracing the other one's quips and quirks and they're making it work. And I just, I absolutely love that. It's, uh, 
just one of my favorite ensemble books, this particular issue. And it's just fantastic. I love it. Oh, I love that. I totally agree. I was so thrilled to revisit this issue and rediscover my own love of it. Keeping the positivity going, I have just an excerpt from a from a Sword Strokes letter that I'm going to do before we close. This is from Cat Smith. And I thought this was, this was just adorable. The Excalibur staff gave me inspiration enough to start drawing and writing. On my own, I've created over 125 different rough drawings and scripts to my own comic book line. I've met the most interesting people through my collecting and trading. I don't think I've ever been so happy. So from the bottom of my heart, I say, thank you. I love the synchronicity of that since Excalibur is going to have 125 issues and Cat Smith here specifically brings up 125. Anyway, I just thought that was adorable. I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning. A fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. All right, we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Quentin, thank you so profusely for joining us. So glad we got to help you celebrate this issue. And so glad that we had you to help us celebrate this issue. I'll say both. Before we go, uh, we need to remind our lovely listeners about all the cool stuff you get up to. We were just talking about you making final edits on one of your Record Redux books. So if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you and what um, projects should they be checking out? You can find me on Instagram out? at RetroModernFly. That's one word. And you can still find me on Twitter for the time being at the QH Blend. One word. Yeah. I've got a few writing projects and things. Um, Irons in the Fire. Uh, specifically for my second edition of Record Redux Kylie Minogue, which is celebrating all of her records from her 15th album Disco Back to her eponymous debut. I'm saving room for her forthcoming 16th album due in the fall for the 40th anniversary of her recording career in 2027. But I'm not adding anything else for now. Um, so it's, it's, it's chock full <laughs> enough. But yeah, you can pretty much find me and all my musings uh, there. And thank you guys for having me again. You know, you guys are one of my favorite podcasts and um, I love the work that you guys do. And please Please don't stop. <laughs> oh, well, you know, we've still got a few more months in yes. us before we get to the end of this one. So we'll be with you for, for at least that long. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much you. again. It was a great combo. Next, we'll be one issue away from number 100, meaning we'll be discussing Excalibur number 99, Fire with Fire, in which Margali makes her move, Pete Wisdom does some spy stuff, and Kurt wears a Pac-Man sweatshirt. Adorable. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube video Videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes plus our holiday specials you can find those via our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you mav and andrew for another excellent discussion thank you quentin for celebrating it all with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to mike's million of thought form music for our truly epic theme song play us out i i tried with the jacob puns i really tried <laughs>